Welcome to The Great American Shit Show. I'm your host, Stephen Vargas. This is where we take a look at the political culture war, cancer culture of a society that has lost the concept of irony and nuance. Welcome to this week's episode of The Great American Shit Show. I wanted to take a moment to remind you guys that we have a website, thegenxerpod.com. That's where you can find my blogs about things that are on my mind, whether it be for this blog or for my other show, The Gen Xer Pod. We have a lot of cool stuff on there. You can also find out more about what's going on behind the scenes, any issues that may be popping up or things that I need to plead out to you. Also, a real quick side note, many of the show notes that I have have links to where I sourced my content. The problem is, is that podcast feeds are very limited, so I can only post so much. So if you want, so I'm not posting the links to those in the podcast feed. If you want to see where the video clips are coming from or where the some of the reports and some of that stuff is coming from, just go to thegenxerpod.com, click on the podcast episode, and there you can find links to all my research aids and videos that I've been using and stuff like that. So, cool. Also, there are links that may help you make this show and my other series self-sustaining. Depending on how donations go, I could set up a Patreon. But that will be later on down the line and not putting the cart before the horse, at least this time. After last week's episode, there will be two more episodes. Now, if you guys are enjoying the series, please let me know on social media or even email me, mailbag at thegenxerpod.com. I know there are probably some people out there that are saying, now do the Democrats. I won't be doing the same style because they're the ones that are actually holding back this country from becoming a banana republic. However, there are some things that they could take from modern Republicans, and which I am seeing from younger politicians that know you can't just sit there and hope they won't hurt you. Democrats fostered a reputation for being weak. They worked really hard on it, and but it, they have to stop. Not only that, but the whole they punch down, we punch up bullshit from 2016, suck my dick, all right? Democrats have many issues, but much of it boils down to ideology and messaging and allowing polls to remove their backbone. But that'll be later on. For now, let's get into this episode. On November 3rd, 1992, President George H.W. Bush lost re-election. After riding high on the coattails of Ronald Reagan's eight prosperous years, the carpet was going to sweep out from under him. After riding high on his early military success of pushing Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, the budding recession took all the wind out of his sails for early re-election, combating a third-party candidate in the form of Ross Perot. Everybody that understands politics will tell you this, what, what's happening today could not happen. They called me the day after the Larry King show and said, everybody that wasn't employed that was looking for a job in politics called me. <laughs> and said, here's a common message. Don't you understand that ordinary people can't organize themselves? They can't get this done? Very difficult, very tedious. Well, you show them. He managed to steal nearly 19% of the electoral vote from the incumbent. A no-name Democrat, William Jefferson Clinton, had originally no shot at winning the presidency. However, a comeback win in New Hampshire coined him the comeback kid. 
while the evening is young, and we don't know yet what the final tally will be, I think we know enough to say with some certainty that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. While Perot won no state electoral votes, he managed to snatch almost 20 million votes from Bush, who had a little over 39 million. But that wasn't enough to catch the nearly 49 million Clinton received, giving him 370 electoral votes to push to Bush's 168. This was a bitter taste for Republicans, and their newly formed coalition found this as the perfect opportunity for revenge. That brings us to this week's episode the modern GOP, the Clinton years. Back in 1988, Vice President George H.W. Bush sailed into victory as the next president of the United States after Ronald Reagan served out his two terms. H.W. Bush rode his coattails into the presidency by reminding voters that because of them, it's morning again in America. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America, and under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? After eight years, the United States figured 12 years sounded even better. Bush decimated Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, picking up 426 electoral votes to Dukakis's 111. However, Democrats retained control of both houses of Congress, picking up one seat in the Senate and two seats in the House. It would be the last time a Republican president won both the Electoral College and the popular vote. Early in his presidency, he received a boost in his approval ratings after pushing back Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Many believed that he would coast the re-election, not to mention during the 88 campaign, he promised over and over again that he would not increase taxes. His no new taxes promise, everything seemed right with the world. Read my lips. No new taxes. Unfortunately, halfway through his first term, the economy started to slip into a recession after eight years of strong economic growth. There were a lot of factors, but one main contributor was the restrictive monetary policy taken by the Federal Reserve, as well as a passing of the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which led to the end of the real estate boom of the early and mid-80s, resulting in shrinking property values lowering investment incentives and job loss. And unemployment began to rise, he poll, his poll numbers started to shrink. Along with him breaking his no new taxes promise, in 1990, under pressure to strike a budget deal with the Democrat-controlled Congress, Bush relented and agreed to hike taxes. 
what struck me was that he went back on that promise. And as you know, was said in the clip there, the Democrats you know, held that against him. But what it initiated was Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich was the whip. And I remember Newt Gingrich going on ABC that weekend and kind of throwing the president under the bus. And that kind of was the rise of Newt Gingrich to kind of develop his bona fides as this conservative upstart caucus on the Republican side of the aisle against the, quote, establishment, the Bushes, the Bob Michael. Bob Michael was the minority leader at the time. And that was kind of the, the beginning of the undoing for President Bush and kind of the beginning of the rise for Newt Gingrich, who was new on the scene as the whip. Bush, meanwhile, was dogged by the broken pledge during his 1992 re-election campaign, both in the primary against Pat Buchanan and in the general election in which Bill Clinton used the issue to effectively muddy the waters on the honesty question. And in the wake of the election, conservatives such as Rush Limbaugh and anti-tax crusader Grover Norquist made the case that the broken tax pledge cost Bush the presidency. Now, fair or not, the belief that Bush was politically devastated as a result of the broken promise on taxes was seared into the Republican consciousness. This, the failing economy, and the introduction of a third-party candidate, Texas millionaire Ross Perot, Bush was starting to look vulnerable. So vulnerable that when Bill Clinton became the Democratic nominee, he coined the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. This had come after efforts from H.W. declining to acknowledge the recession. Now, there is a bit of hypocrisy on the left about the scandals that failed to derail Bill Clinton in the lead-up to the 92 election. Many acted all morally angry that Donald Trump didn't falter with similar accusations in 2016. In early 92, the first sex scandal with Jennifer Flowers was reported. She claimed they had a, an affair for 12 years. Yes, I was Bill Clinton's lover for 12 years. Bill's past was about to catch up with him and Hillary. The truth is, I loved him. Now he tells me to deny it. The problems of Bill and other women are central to the Arkansas years and the marriage of Bill and Hillary Clinton. Well, I'm sick of all of the deceit and I'm sick of all of the lies. The rumors about other women that are more than rumors, they're, they're based on fact. The following months, claims that he manipulated the system to avoid the draft and going to Vietnam, he claimed he did nothing wrong. Or the letter which show up on Wednesday night's edition of Nightline on ABC prompted a Clinton effort to limit the potential for further damage to his presidential campaign. Part of the strategy, attacking the way the letter surfaced. This morning, in a telephone conversation with me, Mr. Koppel confirmed to me that it is his understanding that ABC received a letter from two different sources, both of whom got it from the Pentagon. If this is true, the leak violates the Federal Privacy Act. And the fact that this leak apparently occurred just days before the New Hampshire primary can be no coincidence. Two weeks later, he managed to finish second in the New Hampshire primary after poll numbers showed him dropping fast after the flowers and draft scandals. Hillary wasn't above her own. She was dragged for her response to press questions about whether she profited from state business that came to the Rose Law Firm where she was employed. Ms. Clinton says, you know, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. 
Now, conservatives clung to this claim in that she was disparaging housewives. Yet, none of the controversies derailed Clinton. Bill Clinton was sworn in as the 42nd president of the United States. The next day, Rose Baird, his nominee for attorney general, was under attack. Clinton accepted the request to withdraw Byrd's nomination after she admitted she had employed undocumented foreigners in her home. Now, this was a time when people were astonished that rich people employed undocumented immigrants to do housework. Now, no one would even bat an eye. The president appointed his wife Hillary as the head of the task force on national health care reform. Ms. Clinton was also given a, an office in the West Wing of the White House. Never before had a first lady had such status in her husband's administration. Plus, Clinton initiates his don't ask, don't tell policy. While many are more lightweight scandals, yes, even the affairs, this next one began a whole new chapter for the Clintons that, may con that continue to this day. Vince Foster is found dead at Fort Marcy Park in Virginia. It's ruled a suicide. Foster had been a longtime friend of Clinton and had worked with Hillary at, Rose Law, at the Rose Law Firm. Foster was named deputy counsel to the president in 1992 and was charged with handling Hillary's legal matters, including the Whitewater affair. Now, we need to back up here. This is where the new Republican Party began to sink their teeth into Clinton's lack of focus in Washington. Shortly after his inauguration, the Clinton White House fired the White House travel office staff over reports from the FBI over regularities, which included a second ledger by travel office director Billy Ray Dale and had $18,000 in unaccounted for checks. Now, Republicans saw this as an attempt to reorganize the office and get the business for themselves. Eventually, in 1998, independent counsel Kenneth Starr exonerated Clinton from any wrongdoing. Then Whitewater came back into focus. Back in 1978, then Arkansas Attorney General Bill Clinton, who would eventually be governor later that year, was looking to supplement his government salary and Hillary's income from the Rose Law Firm, where she was an attorney. Now, in Hillary's 2003 memoirs, Living History, she notes, I worried that because politics is an inherently unstable profession, we needed to build up a nest egg. Makes sense. Also in 1978, Bill and Hillary formed the Whitewater Development Corporation with James and Susan McDougall, intending to buy up 230 acres of riverfront land and sell it as lots for vacation homes. Jim McNugle, a real estate entrepreneur, was an old friend of Bill's and cut the Clintons into a deal where they wouldn't pay any upfront investment, but could still stand to profit from the home sales. The land was purchased for $203,000 and paid for by a $180,000 loan on which the Clintons and McDougal's were jointly liable, plus a second loan McDougal took out for the down payment. Now, the Whitewater project was a failure. The location was bad. The land wasn't even accessible after recent heavy storms that caused the river to flood. And amidst the stagflation of the late 70s and early 80s, interest rates were surging, rendering vacation homes unaffordable for many families. Now, investing in a bad land deal isn't a crime. What Jim McDougall did after the initial deal, however, was... He bought a small savings and loan association, renamed it Madison Guarantee, 
and defrauded both it and the small business investment firm Capital Management Services to the tune of $3 million. The bank's failure wound up costing the federal government around $73 million. How this relates to Whitewater Investment, if at all, is disputed to this day. And the details are hazy and complicated, but the Clinton's critics allege that they were involved in Madison's wrongdoings. There will not be a cover-up. There will not be an abuse of power in this office. This, and there is no credible charge that I violated any law, even way back in the dark ages of years ago when this happened. If, the, if I did something wrong, it will come out in the special counsel. They will find the truth. Let them do it. Following Vince Foster's death, his office was sealed to investigators, causing suspicion that documents related to Whitewater had been removed. This is where you start to see the murder conspiracy theories of Clinton begin. Newt Gingrich touched on the theory that Vince Foster was in fact murdered by the Clintons, while Rush Limbaugh, untethered by the Fairness Doctrine, believed he was murdered to keep the truth about Whitewater a secret. In January of 1994, per Clinton's request, Attorney, Janet, Janet, Attorney General Janet Reno announced she is appointing an independent counsel to investigate Whitewater. Reno names Robert Fisk, who deposes the first couple at the White House six months later on June 12, 1994. The deposition is the first of for a sitting president and first lady. Later, after the U.S. Supreme Court of Appeals refuses to reappoint Fisk as independent counsel, Kenneth Starr takes over on August 5, 1994. In May of that year, Paula Jones files a sexual harassment lawsuit against Clinton. Then in July, Congress begins hearings on Whitewater. With the midterms coming up, Newt and his Republican colleagues decide that this is a perfect time to attempt to retake Congress. On September 27th, more than 300 candidates gathered outside the Capitol to sign the Contract with America, a document of Gingrich's creation that outlined 10 bills Republicans promised to pass if they took control of the House. We're here because we are taking the first steps, and we're taking them in a contract with the American people. We've already told the incumbents and the candidates that if we have a majority, if the American people accept this contract, that they can expect to work five days a week in January, six days a week in February and March, and 24 hours a day around the clock towards the end if necessary. But we are going to get to the final recorded votes in the first 100 days on every item. This led to Republicans taking control of the Senate and the House, which was the first time in 40 years that Republicans had control. This set up the first big showdown between Newt and Clinton on November 13, 1995. Clinton vetoes the balanced budget proposal given to him by House leaders. With no approved budget, the federal government shuts down. A week later, the president signs a continuing resolution allowing the government to remain open while negotiations continue. The second shutdown happens in December, which Gingrich assumed would play for Republicans, the weaponized government shutdown. There have been federal funding lapses before, but they tend to be minor affairs and last only a day or two. Gingrich's, Gingrich's shutdown, by contrast, furloughed hundreds of thousands of government workers for several weeks at Christmas time, so Republicans could use their paychecks as a bargaining chip in negotiations with the White House. The gamble was a bust. 
Voters blamed the GOP for the crisis and Gingrich was criticized in the press, but it ensured that the shutdown threat would loom over every congressional standoff from that point on. As a result, the shutdown gave Clinton another term in 1996, winning over 49% of the vote and 379 electoral votes to Bob Dole's 159. Ross Perot attempted to be a spoiler candidate, but then that didn't match up. This time, taking nearly 8.5% of the vote. It made him the first Democrat to win a second term since Franklin Roosevelt. And it would be a year later that he would face the most difficult fights of his political career. It started during the 1995 government shutdown and a young intern named Monica Lewinsky. During the government shutdown of 1995, all government employees were sent home. Interns of all departments were shuffled around to assist in areas that were open. The White House needed some interns since they had little to no staff. An intern, Monica Lewinsky, was sent to the White House where she came in contact with Bill Clinton. A relationship formed, and the rest is history. Now, also during that time, independent counsel Ken Starr was still investigating him for some type of crime. Republicans kept expanding his mandate, attempting to find something on Clinton that they can use against him. Travelgate and Whitewater were going nowhere, and they weren't finding anything that they could use against him. In fact, Clinton's popularity was high that was making it harder for things to stick. He was paying down the national debt and the economy was good. That is all most people care about. Juxtaposition it with Trump, Republicans kept the scope of the independent counsel on Trump and only the Mueller report and couldn't investigate anything beyond the purview of the report. During the Clinton years, Republicans had him look into all aspects until he found something, even into the Paula Jones accusations, which had nothing to do with what initiated the independent counsel. Well, Donna, what began as a search for evidence in the Paula Jones sexual harassment case has mushroomed into another investigation of the president and his personal conduct. Now, sources tell CNN that independent counsel Kenneth Starr is investigating whether the president and his confidant, Washington lobbyist Merton Jordan, asked a former White House intern to lie about a relationship she says or at least alleges to have with the president. Now, at issue is whether the intern had a sexual relationship with the president, something the Jones teams wants to prove as part of its sexual harassment case. Sources say Starr is investigating whether Mr. Clinton and Mr. Jordan conspired to encourage the intern to commit perjury and whether in the process the two men obstructed justice. Now, the Washington Post reports that there are tape recordings of the intern, 24-year-old Monica Lewinsky, talking to another former White House aide, Linda Tripp, in which Lewinsky alleges she had a year-and-a-half-long affair with the president. But Lewinsky has signed a sworn statement now denying any relationship with the president. The White House is referring all questions to Mr. Clinton's personal lawyer, Robert Bennett. He tells CNN, quote, the president adamantly denies any relationship with this woman, and she has denied it as well. I smell a rat. Then one year after his second inaugural, news breaks that President Clinton may have had a sexual relationship with a White House intern. On PBS's NewsHour program, Clinton tells Jim Lehrer there is not a sexual relationship. The media wonders whether the president was using verb tense to be evasive. In a, president, in a press conference on January 26, Clinton makes a comment that will be repeated for the rest of his presidency. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. 
The following April, the judge in the Paula Jones case dismissed her sexual harassment suit, which was mostly backed by conservatives bent on bringing Clinton down. Now, with the Monica Lewinsky affair, she was no longer useful. Congress immediately expanded Starr's mandate again to include the Lewinsky affair. Through the initial months of the investigation, Clinton kept denying the affair until he couldn't anymore. A year after the news broke on January of 1998, Bill Clinton testifies to a grand jury in the White House. Later that same day, he makes a televised address to the nation in which he admits having had inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the grand jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. And that is why I am speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Republicans immediately began denouncing Clinton for lying under oath, thus committing perjury. Gingrich said that the president needed to be impeached because lying under oath was considered high crimes and misdemeanors. Rush Limbaugh ran for hours a day saying how Clinton destroyed the office of the presidency because he lied about an affair. On December 19, 1998, the United States House of Representatives passed two of four articles of impeachment on counts of perjury and obstruction of justice. The president is impeached. Democratic congressional leaders assemble on the White House lawn to show of support for the president. Good evening, everyone. I'm Sandra Bookman. And I'm Bill Ritter. Topping our news at 11 o'clock, it was another surreal day, capping a surreal week. A day once again filled with both bombs and bombshells. The biggest news, shortly before 1.30 this afternoon, President Clinton was impeached as the House approved two articles of impeachment. Later, the president ignored calls for his resignation and he vowed to stay on the job and complete his term. Unlike what happened in the two impeachment trials of Donald Trump, Republicans stated that perjury and obstruction of justice wasn't an impeachable offense. This is strange considering that the Lewinsky case wasn't even the reason for the independent counsel. They were to investigate Travelgate and Whitewater, which began in his first term, but they weren't as eager when it came to their own guy. In fact, in the Clinton impeachment, Republicans actually helped Clinton's approval. His approval rating ranged from 36% approval in mid-93 to 64% in late 93-94 in his first term. His second term, his approval rating ranged from high 50s to high 60s. After the impeachment hearings in 98 and 99, he reached 73% approval. The said William Jefferson Clinton B, and he hereby is acquitted of the charges in the said articles. Now, the Senate trial of President Clinton began on January 14th. Even before the Senate trial ends on March 12th, it's clear that the Senate will not vote to impeach the president and the trial ends. Politicians like Newt Gingrich and pundits like Rush Limbaugh failed to read the tea leaves. Their successes in 1994 gave them some backlash in 98. 
the rise of Fox News and the beginning of Clinton's second term hadn't found their footing. Had they been what it is now, things might have been different. But another time when the Republicans didn't care about public sentiment and went full political. In the process of pursuing an impeachment of the president, Republicans had seriously overplayed their hand. An indication of what lay ahead came when the party actually lost five seats in the House while gaining no seats in the November 98 elections conducted just prior to the impeachment vote. Traditionally, the opposing party registers significant gains in the off-year elections of a president's second term, and so the Republicans' loss was virtually unprecedented. Now, as the impeachment process unfolded, Clinton's ratings and public opinions were at an all-time high. Most Americans gave Clinton low marks for character and honesty, but they gave him high marks for performance and wanted him censured and condemned for his conduct, but not impeached and removed. Many viewed key Republican attackers as mean-spirited extremists willing to use a personal scandal for partisan goals. In the end, voters were happy with Clinton's handling of the White House, the economy, and most matters of public life. Hillary Clinton's public opinion poll ratings actually exceeded the president's in large measure because of her dignified demeanor during those trying personal times, thus lifting her popularity to among the highest ever for a first lady. Now, it's important to remember that while Republicans took some hits as a result of the impeachment of Bill Clinton, Republicans still retained control, albeit smaller, of both chambers. Democrats wouldn't take control of the Senate until 2001 when Republican Jim Jeffers of Vermont switched parties. Now, it's easy for people to say that history is repeating itself. However, in 2020, Democrats managed to pick up seats in the Senate and lost a few in the House. However, like in 1998 and 2000, Democrats retained control of the House. But Republicans lost seat in the Senate. Not to mention, Clinton had a low 60% approval rating at the time, unlike Trump, who was at 40%. That's a, in a hilarious postscript to the story. At the time Newt Gingrich was pushing for impeachment of Bill Clinton, it was learned that Gingrich himself was having an affair with a young congressional intern. However, he didn't view his actions against Clinton as his own extra of, um, extramarital affair as hypocritical. I drew a line in my mind that said, even though I run the risk of being deeply embarrassed, and even though at a purely personal level, I'm not rendering judgment on another human being. As a leader of government trying to uphold the rule of law, I have no choice except to move forward and say that you cannot accept felonies, referring to lying under oath, and you cannot accept perjury in, the high, in your highest officials, Gingrich said. Gingrich ultimately stepped down as Speaker and quit Congress in 1998 amid ethics allegations and Republicans' loss in the midterm elections. Now, keep in mind, Gingrich supported Trump because quid pro quo and inciting an insurrection didn't rise to the level of lying about an affair. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what I'm doing here, you have two ways to help out. One, you can make a one-time donation to make this show self-sustaining through either PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. Check the show notes for details and or links. Or two, you can share us on social media or review us on Apple Podcasts. This will make the algorithm gods promote our show to an unsuspecting public. 
And you can stalk me on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Gen Xer pod, Instagram threads and TikTok at the Gen underscore Xer. And if you're old school, email me mailbag at the Gen Xer pod.com and want to read some news blogs or just some of my random musings, check out the blog at the Gen Xer pod.com. So that is it for me this week. So until next time, if your society has lost the art of irony and nuance, then you need to thank the Great American Shit Show. Oh, 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 oh,